The Scuttlebutt is proud to welcome Millerstown Pick Apart, a self-service salvage yard where you can get parts you need for your car, truck, or van at very attractive prices because you do the work. Bring your own wrenches, hammers, screwdrivers, sockets, jacks, drills, or whatever you need, except for torches, to wrestle out the parts you need for the vehicles in the yard. Millerstown Pick Apart was created 17 years ago to provide reasonably priced solutions for auto parts needs. Millerstown is the perfect fit for those seeking discount auto parts to repair their own vehicles. Millerstown has a huge inventory of cars, which they purchase from individuals, towing companies, and auctions, and from its sister auto salvage recycling operation. For hours, directions, inventory, parts availability, and pricing, you can go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D, pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. That's pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. That's one of those things that I think is so frustrating for me, the continuation of bad ideas, of Mm -hmm. knowing It's a bad idea, and still, we continue on. Welcome, everyone, to The Scuttle, but I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Uh, We're super excited uh, for our guest today, where we're going to be talking with Adam Zafudo about his service and about his work trying to bring uh, Afghan refugees and interpreters over here to the United States. If you have been liking the Scuttlebutt, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube. Plus, we always like hearing from you, so you can email me at Sean, that's S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Um, Adam, welcome to the Scuttlebutt. I, I, uh, I got an email from you, and I was really interested and, and excited to talk with you about the work you've been doing, but also the service that, that you've, you, know, you had um, and your deployments. Um, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Sure, sure. Well, as Sean said, I'm Adam Zafudo. I'm a uh, local Pittsburgh veteran. I joined the Army in 2008, and uh, I ended up doing two tours overseas, one in Iraq and another one in Afghanistan. Uh, my tour in Afghanistan was in 2013 in Zari District in Kandahar Province. And I also got to spend some time out in Helmand, um, working alongside some special operations folks and some Marines out there. Um, a lot of the stuff that I did um, when I was in Kandahar, in Zari, I got to work with a lot of interpreters doing base defense security, doing um, working an entry control point for local nationals, and then working alongside the Afghan army at our front base security, and as well as doing some training on training them with uh, basically mortars and mortar tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, that was my specialty in the army was mortars. So getting to go to Afghanistan and getting to kind of utilize all of those tools in a um, kind of getting to use those tools in your toolbox was a very unique experience. I really enjoyed being able to work with the Afghan interpreters. My first tour in Iraq, I was a radio man for a, a lieutenant in a basically our infantry raid platoon. We're doing a lot of patrolling and a lot of night raids, um, which was back when you could still do night raids, mm-hmm. uh, which was, those were, those were very um, kind of like, I, I, I feel the, the real, the real tenseness of, when people talk about no knock raids here in the United States, because that's what, that's what we were doing in Iraq against some very, very dangerous people. So the, mm-hmm. the intensity of that is it's incredibly high. Um, and so I was a, a radio man and got to do just about everything an infantryman gets to do in Iraq. Um, and so my work as a radio man, I got to work with my interpreter as well as 
questioning prisoners and, you know, talking to folks on the ground and, you know, you go into the same store that you patrol every single day and you talk to the same guy and he gets to know you and you buy a pack of smokes from him every day and you get to learn little bits of information about the culture and about the people you're in that, that I found to be really useful. Um, and our interpreters there in Iraq were, were mostly Kurds. We were on the kind of Sunni Kurd border in northern Iraq in a town called Hawija, which was um, a little bit closer to Tikrit than it was to Kirkuk. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a heavily Sunni city that was made up of mostly people from Saddam's tribe and from allied tribes to Saddam. So it had a very heavy Sunni Arab tribal um, alliance to Saddam in the area. So there was still murals of Saddam up on, on, on buildings when you would drive through and you'd go to a town council and you'd, you'd ask them kind of what is it that they want? What can we do to stop the violence? And when they would say, bring Saddam back, it's, we hung him. Yeah, I don't that, that, know what to tell you. I, yeah, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And so, kind of seeing the interplay between having a Shia army battalion in a Sunni city with bordering Kurdish towns was like this this very unique interplay of seeing a lot of the major kind of ethnic sects in Iraq and how having a Shia army battalion basically precluded them from doing any work policing the Sunnis mm -hmm. um, because the insurgents were more interested in killing them and fighting the Iraqi army than they were in fighting us, which was like a daytime job for them. Mm -hmm. So you find yourself in this position of like, we want the Iraqi army to help us, but they'll only help us in a couple of ways. Now, when we would go out to the Kurdish towns, it was like, um, I, I described it to a friend once as like, it was like uh, opening the wardrobe and you step into Narnia. You, know, you step into this different world where we went to a town and like you see all the military aged men grabbing their rifles and like walk into the outside of town. You're like, hmm, it's interesting, you know? Yeah. Well, they were going out there to just defend the outskirts. And we went in and they had a feast for us, basically. Like you we went in, we got to take our armor off and our interpreter was like, no, no, these are good people. Take your armor off. And our mm -hmm. platoon sergeant was take your armor off, sling your rifles. You can go like play soccer with these kids and have a, like sit down and have tea and have a, like have a meal, like have a feast for us. And it was very, very, like a, a very unique experience. And then, mm -hmm. so I took all of that kind of like, oh, well, there's different cultures at play and there's things that you can learn from getting to know these interpreters and, and Hey man, something that they know might just save your life. And it might just help right. you, like, might just help you get your guys home. And so going there as a Sergeant now, like having that base of knowledge and getting to work with interpreters very closely. Like I took as like, Oh, well, soak up as much knowledge as you can from these guys. Cause there's a, um, I think a particularly like American and Western thing of where if somebody speaks like, uh, and I, maybe it's not, maybe it's not an American thing. Maybe it's, maybe it's every culture finds that but when somebody doesn't speak your language correctly, you kind of look at them in a, in a bit of a like, Oh, what's, what's this guy? Yeah. Speak can't speak English, man. Like, and then you realize like, and so some of my younger soldiers, I, I made it a point to be like, Hey man, just cause that dude doesn't speak perfect English. Doesn't mean he's, he's stupid. Doesn't mean he's in any way, shape or form less intelligent than you because all of our interpreters, they grew up here in Afghanistan. They know way more about the, just the, the crazy cultural interplay that is going on in this country. 
Mm-hmm. And in just that region. I mean, in just that, yeah. Exactly. The Pashtuns and the Tajiks and the Uzbek and the Hazara. And it's this, this wild conglomeration of people. And like, hey, man, those interpreters speak like six or seven languages. Mm-hmm. You can read four or five of them. Like, that's something that we as Americans, like, we would look at that and we would, what is it, a polyglot. Yeah. This person is a polyglot and they're, they're, a, they're one of the miracles of our modern education system. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't know, man, these kids are growing up learning Dari, Pashtu, Farsi, mm-hmm. Uzbek, you know, and they're speaking dialects of all of them. Right. And so that was something that I took is like, these guys not only have a huge amount of knowledge about just the language, but about the people and like, hey, man, what do I need to know about these people? Like, what are the things that I need to know? And one of the, like, those bits of information that you get from them is like, oh, don't trust the ANA guys because mm-hmm. they're all smoking dope. Half of them are Taliban. 40% right. of them are Pashtun. In Afghanistan, you mean? This is where, yeah. In, in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Half of the, you know, I think mandated in the Afghan constitution, the Afghan constitution that was, was mm-hmm. this, this idea for the Afghan National Army to be a truly national army. And that's, um, that I think kind of more gets into some of those structural and strategic failings of why things fell apart and how they fell apart so quickly. And part of it is what you're already saying and just there were so many different tribes and, and, like, and as I've heard, uh, a lot of these Afghanis don't even know what Afghanistan is. They're like you say, this if is can, the country, can... yeah. I can stop you real quick. Um, sure. Afghans. Afghans. So Thank Afghani, Afghani is a currency, a denomination, ah. or, or like a dog. So it's an Afghan. An Afghan is a person, and Afghani is a currency. Thank you for that. I've yeah, not sure. been corrected on that yet. So yeah. that was I mean, like beat and, into us by our sergeant major. Like, hey, this is, hey, Sergeant Major <laughs> Lon Kindler, one of the finest leaders I have ever. That man beat that into our head. Beat that into our head. Um, so the Afghans. Uh, I had heard that if you tried to have them describe what Afghanistan is, that really wasn't a concept that they were used to. Yeah. So you look at Afghanistan, you kind of have to think around it as this, well, it is an idea more than it is borders. Afghanistan's an idea. Afghanistan Mm -hmm. existed as an idea in the time of Alexander. This exists. This was an idea, but it's always been these separate tribal people and specifically along that kind of southern border, southern and and rising up into the east into the the Hindu Kush mountains, Mm -hmm. that border along Pakistan is, it's it's the vast majority is Pashtun. Mm -hmm. And the Pashtun range like everywhere from down into Iran, all the way up into the mountains and all the way up towards, um, towards China. And so that is a massive swath of people who consider themselves to be culturally Pashtun. Mm-hmm. But the Pashtun in, in, um, in, in southern Kandahar, right, yeah. out in Helmand, mm-hmm. are going to be culturally far different than, than a Pashtun up in the mountains in Nuristan or mm-hmm. up in the mountains in, uh, near the Korangal Valley. Like Those people were culturally, ethnically Pashtun but they considered themselves like even this smaller offshoot of Korangali or Noristani. And so everything breaks down in Afghanistan to these, these tribal groups. And you have this, now the Pashtun kind of, it's that border of Afghan Pakistan that there's also a vast majority of 
of Pashtuns who live in Pakistan, but these are families and, and tribes that have existed far beyond Afghanistan or Pakistan ever existed. These yeah. family and clan relationships existed far before the British Empire decided that this was going to be a line we're going to draw on a mountainside. Right. So these, these family and clan groups don't particularly see that border as being anything other than some invention of who knows foreigners so exactly so for them it's it is meaningless for them mm -hmm. and so you have this southern pashtun cross-border culture which doesn't particularly respect the you know the ruling government of either nation state mm -hmm. and then northern afghanistan is where you kind of have the the very wide mix of of smaller ethnic tribes hazaras being a ethnic minority um kind of in the more northeast of northeast of Afghanistan there um, they generally have a more Asian appearance mm -hmm. the Hazaras um, they're it's always been rumored they're the more of the descendants of the Mongols that stayed in Afghanistan okay and then you have Uzbeks and those are the same you know the same kind of cultural people that make up Uzbekistan but mm -hmm. But they hold on to this idea of like, oh, well, yeah, but the Uzbeks in Uzbekistan aren't even really Uzbeks anymore because they had how many years of Soviet rule? So mm -hmm. are they even really Uzbeks anymore? And they hold on to their cultural identity. And the same with the Tajiks. Like the Tajiks, hey, man, we're like Afghan Tajiks. We're like the real Tajiks, you know? Mm -hmm. And they, the Tajiks in Tajikistan, they've been exposed to all of the Stalinist Western, they've lost their religion and they've lost their connection to their culture. And is there a piece of that that is like uh, Russians um, also like married into Uzbeks yeah, and like yeah. sort of muddied the, that, the bloodline in a way? I, I would say it, they look at it more through cultural lenses of like a okay. disconnection to their culture. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, well, these people aren't, they're not like Tajiks, like us, Afghan Tajiks because mm -hmm. we stayed connected to it and we we beat the russians mm -hmm. you guys just made a deal with them and that's also part of it is this continual afghan spirit of defeating the outsider yeah. of you know the 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 always ever present idea of you know you have the watches we have the time yeah yeah we can wait and we will wait not only are we going to wait we're going to wait on the other side of a border we're going to wait inside of your supposed ally that you give hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to. We're going to wait inside of their borders, inside of areas that even they can't get to. Mm -hmm. You can't get to, they can't get to, nobody can get to. And so that's that, that, uh, that idea of they can always just retreat deeper. Mm -hmm. There's always, it, I kind of, um, I look at it in a way of, when you looked at how the American, uh, how the American army fought the Indians, especially mm -hmm. in the end in the Indian Wars, when you had multiple Sioux nations and tribes that were all just, they would come out and they would attack. And then no matter what you do, they would just retreat deeper back into the Black Hills. Yeah. You know, but the Black Hills were only so big. Afghanistan is unconquerable. It is the Black Hills on steroids. It is the Black Hills on genetic engineering and then steroids and then you know just god going in and picking it up and lifting it higher because it's just this massive elevation change that is yeah it it, it really kind of uh you struggle to look at it i don't know as a pennsylvanian like 
yeah we just you have see, these little appalachian mountains but you right. get into like you yeah if you see any pictures down of the Korngal or the pesh it's just like it's, you're in the you're in the rockies like you are in it's it's the rockies on steroids it's, yeah and it is uh it's the himalayas the, the southern tip of the himalayas right yes yeah yeah and you it's snow-capped peaks like you can see them you're in kandahar and you can look and be like oh there's okay there they are there you know and that is like just the thing about afghanistan it's just this can always see the mountains from somewhere yeah. even if you're down in a valley and it's like humid and it's hot and you can be like oh but there's a mountain and that's like yeah they're always just going to go up they're going to keep climbing higher up back and there's the it's almost impossible to track that like that's that's where you know we're, before we started recording we were talking about how these outposts got established into the pesh into into these very cultural towns that where they speak a different language from one town to the next um you know yeah. you could build all as many as many bases as you want but they were always going to get attacked and they were probably always going to get uh uh left in the end yeah. it was um you're asking people to at times win an unwinnable war mm-hmm. and that was you're asking and i think the uh some of the things that with the Korangal, that became such a kind of a highlight, I think in, in, in America's mind. And I think it should be, and it, it should be. And if for anyone out there who I tell everyone who wants to know what it was like to be an infantryman in combat in our modern wars, the two documentaries that Sebastian Younger made Restrepo and Korangal are absolutely amazing. Incredible. They, they are the best picture of what, being in a infantry platoon in combat is like, and it was in the most intense combat that we've faced in decades. And these men that were, that were up in these mountains were, they're, they're being asked to, to control uncontrollable positions, to win an unwinnable war, to, to control mm-hmm. an uncontrollable valley that's surrounded by mountains and is, has not only is it a culture that, seeks to repel the outsider at all costs like you said sean the the um from valley from valley to valley they speak different dialects that don't correspond Mm -hmm. and some of these afghans experience may be their entire experience for a 60 or 70 year old man may be inside of this valley Mm -hmm. including possibly a hajj to mecca but other than that his entire experience has been this valley right and so for they know every rock they know every path exactly. every every exactly. inch of it exactly and w- we were dealing with specifically that up in the Korangal, i had a, um, a platoon sergeant who went in and relieved the 173rd airborne after they had been doing the filming of restrepo and that was one of the things that he said is the the expanse and the scale of things was was so was so shocking to him that in his first battle there he grabbed his 60 mortar and started sent a 60 mortar round, you know, 60 millimeter mortar round down range. And a 60 millimeter mortar has a 3.6 kilometer range, mm-hmm. right? 3,600 meters. And he had expected like, all right, bang, and expected to see the round hit somewhere on the mountainside. And okay, well, we'll just from there. And he said, it was, it was at that point that he was like, man, where is it? And he fired another one and okay, man, where did that thing go? And he was like, then I looked down and saw them going off down in the valley. Yeah. And he's like, I realized it didn't matter that mm-hmm. I had a 60 millimeter mortar. 
because I wasn't going to hit the guy on the other side of the valley anyways. Right. But he was going to be able to shoot at me with whatever they had. Mm-hmm. So they had Russian 50 cals and things and, and Russian 14.7 millimeter heavy machine guns up in the mountains that they were going to shoot at our guys with. That like, yeah. We never encountered things like that in Iraq. You never encountered heavier weapons. You, the off and on like, it was the RPGs and the IEDs. And then like very, very seldom it would come out in some intelligence brief that an RPG 29 came into theater and knocked out a Bradley or took out an Abrams or something like that. But mm-hmm. you always knew that those were very specialized, like, oh, that was some Syrian money that, you know, got their hands on an RPG 29 and went in and took out an Abrams and they're back in, you know, Aleppo partying it up, having killed some infidels, like, because that right. was something that was going on in, in Iraq with a lot mm-hmm. of Saudis and, and Syrians. But, but this was like, oh, those are in fighting positions. Mm-hmm. You know, they're lobbing SPG-9, like re- Russian recoilless rifles down mm-hmm. into our positions up in those valleys. And hey, we don't even know where they're coming from. Yeah. You know? And we had all of these, you know, uh, these like super lightweight radar systems that we would put out in Iraq to, to pick up the mortar fire, mm-hmm. the rockets that were coming in. And you could set that up in Afghanistan, but it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. it worked. That thing had to have, it worked off of catching something twice, catching the beam twice. Okay. You get an arc of where it's going. You can yeah. pick out a, a point of impact. Well, when they're shooting them down from mountains, you, it doesn't matter. Yeah. They're, they're coming too fast and they're sitting up there with rockets and they're not even, having to arc them they're just firing them into our positions and like we were talking about earlier like the outpost i think the um it, it shows so well the I movie the a, movie yeah, or the book the movie yeah. the outpost yeah the book written by by jake tapper jake tapper shows and so it's based well. on camp keating uh for our audience yeah. who have, yeah. haven't seen it or seen it or read it I've, i highly suggest it because i've seen the outpost it's incredible uh, but yes. camp keating go ahead yeah it's about the battle of uh camp keating uh, also, I think it was kind of known as PRT Camdash, which a pro- mm-hmm. like a provincial reconstruction team was supposed to be reconstructing this province, a these villages and these towns. Well, reconstructing what? There was nothing built there. There, there was literally people who were living as if culturally they they had stepped out of somewhere in the Middle Ages. Like these were people who were not connected in any way, shape, or form to a modern form of government nor a um, a western yeah it's not like they're going in and building a mcdonald's this is like you know even putting we're talking about building a road right we're talking about can we put a school in here that teaches something other than the quran like that Mm -hmm. that's and and that is a discussion that is going to take it's the guys who are there having those discussions beginning and opening those discussions in a place like afghanistan are not going to finish them it's just Things don't work like that. They do not work that fast. Mm-hmm. They don't work that smoothly. We're going to have this conversation for two, three, four years, maybe, before mm-hmm. we come to a handshake agreement, and then maybe we start construction. Yeah. So you had these outposts way, way up in these mountains in places that were undefendable, that not only were indefendable from the ground, but even if you had air support, you can't get helicopters up there. Was, yeah. a, was another portion of the war that we kind of like, I always felt like the American public didn't know about Afghanistan the way that like those of us that were specifically having and preparing to go to Afghanistan, when you're doing all of the reading, mm-hmm. like as an NCO, you're being like, 
hey, your task and your responsibility is going to be, be the lives of these young men going into combat. Like it's your knowledge and the experience that you learned in Iraq and what you can learn in between that's going to get your men back home alive. Mm-hmm. And so I'm doing all of the reading. I'm reading, you know, uh, The Bear Went Over the Mountain, which is a anyone interested in the actual tactics of Afghanistan. The Bear this was written by a Russian, right? Uh, Lester W. Grau wrote The Lester Bear w. Went Over the Mountain, I believe. I'm glad believe, you brought this up because I brought it up in part one and couldn't remember the title of the book. So I'm glad yeah. you're bringing it up now for the audience. The Bear Went Over the Mountain. So The Bear Went Over the Mountain is... Lester Grau went and interviewed all of these ex-Soviet officers and Mm -hmm. generals and commanders all the way down to, he has, you know, excerpts from sergeants about battle. So you get this full map detail of, oh, well, we were here and they were here and this is what the issues were. Mm -hmm. The second part of that book is, it's called The Other Side of the Mountain. And that's where you learn why it's impossible to win. And -hmm. the other side of the mountain was, um, I, I can't remember the man's name, but it's Lester W. Grau. And I, I, I can't remember the, the man's name, but he went and met with all of the Mujahideen commanders that mm-hmm. they could find after the war and, and talked about all of these battles. And so you have these battles tactically from both sides, from the commanders and from soldiers on the ground of both sides talking about the tactics. And that was just one of the things that kept striking me. It's like, oh, it, it doesn't matter. Even when the Russians were winning, they weren't winning. Yeah. Even when they would consider it a tactical victory, the Afghans were like, yeah, they kept saying they won, but like we knocked out six BMPs, took two trucks full of ammunition and like shot down a Hind. Yeah. We, yeah, 10 guys got martyred, but what? Yeah. that's what they're here for. Exactly. And so you, you it just became this idea of like, man, just i just don't know like when you're going and starting to prepare for this it's at that point you're you're just there trying to stick it out stay alive and hold position and the i I was down in a river valley we were right off highway one and then i got to spend my little time like out in helmand living in a foxhole and like that was another experience of in iraq it was your experience varied from how far you were kind of from the flagpole Mm-hmm. in afghanistan you could get very far from the flagpole very quickly like we were a platoon and a like um kind of a advise and assist team and then a special operations team on the other side of the ridge line like mm-hmm. we were very far from anybody else there were some marines but they were way the hell down that valley you know yeah. and they're not going to get to you because it's going to yeah. take them quite some time to get to you so this is that kind of feeling of, um, I don't know if you can get there, but it's that feeling of kind of like, what did kind of Custer feel like, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And you're going up into those mountains and you're, you're riding back into those hills and you go, at some point, somebody on Custer's staff was like, this is a bad idea. And, right. and that's one of those things that, that um, I think is so frustrating for me, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of this war, like, is the, the continuation of bad ideas, of mm-hmm. knowing it's a bad idea. And still, we continue on. Because for, to, to, to change, to, to adjust our tactics would be to somehow admit defeat. And admitting defeat is, is somehow worse than an actual defeat. And that's why mm-hmm. I, I think some of us that I've talked to some veterans that 
we just find to be so frustrating about that all is like mm-hmm. there was just so many bad ideas that anybody on the ground would look at this and say this is a bad idea any infantryman on the ground any mm-hmm. cavalryman as they were on the ground there in at camp camdash knew that this is an undefendable position right they can literally shoot machine guns down from a thousand foot cliff mm-hmm. you know it, it's impossible with precision with and, not, precision. Not, and not even with maybe the most precise weapons but yeah. just they just they have a camp it's right there just exactly open fire exactly and, and it, it's one of those things that just makes you ask like man man who was making these decisions yeah i think that 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 that's uh maybe that kind of leads us into what we talking about the Afghan evacuations and how like well before we get to that let, yeah before we get to the evacuation so you I mean we're leading up to sort of what the work you're doing with um yeah. with interpreters yeah. so if uh you know you're in these bases and you have an interpreter come in did you bring them from you know uh Kabul or you know where did they join you or did they know they were, the, um, the culture oh, up in the so, mountains so there's a, a couple things I could talk about one thing I think another thing that people don't understand is like some of these some of these interpreters, like the contract, they were contracted by like third-party contractors. So like mm. third-party contractors brought them in and like did all sorts of shady shit to these people. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that like this, as you know, we continue on, it's like the sullying of like the honor and like the reputation of America is what I find like so frustrating about it. It's like the lack of virtue in like, you know, did we expect war profiteers to be, in some way, shape, or form, like honorable, you know, but one of the things is they knew that our interpreters at two years would get um, SIV, would get their special immigrant visas. So they would bring in whole batches of them. And the only ones that they would, they would offer them a pay raise at two years. Mm-hmm. And then, so they would keep the ones that were doing like really, really, really well. They keep those ones. And then everybody else, no matter what, they would fire at 18 months and they would say they would fire them for cause, mm. right? Yeah. And you would have all of these Afghans who now got fired for reason. These guys spoke multiple languages, spoke English, have no reason. And then they got kicked out onto the street so that some contractor could pocket like an extra couple hundred thousand dollars. And it's things like that that just go like, man, mm-hmm. no wonder. You know? And then they were two, then at that point, they're months short yeah. of being able to get an SIV. Yeah, months short of being able to get an SIV. And then you can't get hired again because everybody's going to look it back and go, well, this guy got fired for who knows what he got fired for, but he got fired for something. So yeah, it was just, unless you knew somebody that would be like, Hey man, can you hire this guy? Yeah. And it wasn't like they were going to get, then get hired by the Afghans. It, it, they're yeah, now working exactly. with the, the Americans. So they're putting their lives at risk, their families at risk. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, and they're um, in a catch 22. So that was, um, I think it plays to a bigger, I think Sean, it plays to a bigger thing too. It, mm. it plays to a bigger, a bigger idea of you had, in Afghanistan, you had two competing narratives and you had two ideas of a world. You had the idea of the Taliban, of they're going to institute exactly what it is that they wanted to institute. And then you had the idea of like a free Western Afghanistan, yeah. you know, of a free Afghan, you mm-hmm. know, of, of a, through their own cultural lens, a free Afghan. And, and, and I think specifically a free Afghan woman. And I, I kind of use that term in, in capital A, capital W, you know, Afghan woman, like the, the more the idea than the actual individual, because it's one yeah. of those things that 
when I would when I would speak with my interpreters who were these are guys who grew up in went to schools their families probably had a little bit more money than the average rural Afghan but you know that didn't mean they were disconnected entirely from it they just kind of had more of an understanding of Afghanistan as a part of the world yeah instead of Afghanistan as being this is where I live and this is all there is and so they understood that there was a different way to do things there's a different culture out there there's hey maybe our women can go to school maybe they can you know be doctors and be lawyers and and be accountants and, and take part in business and and have a part in society you know still within our cultural context and within mm-hmm. our cultural frameworks but but that idea of like there was something else there was something different yeah and it was kind of like that idea of like an american like an american dream they had an afghan dream of a different afghanistan mm-hmm. and for a lot of them it was you know wanting to come here to the united states my interpreters and because they wanted a better life for their family they wanted safety they wanted security and that as long as there was a taliban it was never going to be safe for them because and they and they probably knew that there wasn't wasn't going to be a point where the Taliban were just gone, or that they would just not come back. There was never in any of the, I don't know. It, I guess it's difficult to look at it from like when I was boots on the ground, but but even when I wasn't in uniform and I was talking with them, you know, in the the months prior to kind of the fall of Kabul, it was there was never this feeling of um, that it was all just going to collapse. There was always mm. this idea of like, well. Helmand, Zabel, Karat, Kandahar, those will probably all go. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the Pashtun homeland. And, and those places, those specifically like Helmand and Kandahar um, were, were described to me once. And I think, I think all of the Mountaineer fans won't appreciate this, but all the Pitt fans really will. I had an Afghan interpreter describe it to me as like, well, you got to understand out there in Helmand, they're like West Virginians. He described it like, it's Afghanistan's West Virginia. He's like, they don't care about whatever law you say there is because this is Helmand. Yeah. It's not your, we don't care. And it's like that idea of like, yeah, there's a law in West Virginia, but how much of a law actually gets out into the hauler? Yeah. You know, yeah. how much actual law is there deep, deep back in Idaho? You know? Yeah. Not That's what, that was one thing I was going to ask is like, what is the view of the government when you go out into that? You know, uh, when you get really far out into there. Like that kind of gets, I think, into again that um, those big strategic missteps. Yeah. Those, where did we make the mistakes that kind of like that killed us? And I think one of them is, a a, like very, very narrow focus on the cities. There was this idea that, um, and I think it was really kind of narrowed in under the Obama administration of this idea that if we can urbanize Afghanistan, if we can bring about an urban Afghanistan where, where you have urban centers of in like industry and technology, then we'll be able to pull the people from the rural valleys into the cities where they'll have access to education and to healthcare and to mm-hmm. all of the all of the accoutrements of the Western world. Right, right. And I think that that was a massive miscalculation in that the outreach to the Afghan living in his village mm-hmm. was so lacking that the only outreach he saw 
was an American soldier or an Afghan National Army soldier or an Afghan National Police soldier who, again, now I think this is something that maybe uh, kind of can structure a little bit of context around Afghanistan is you have in Afghanistan this, this like individualness combined with your cultural and tribal relationship with which leads you to a society where literally it is me against my brother mm-hmm. over something. It's me and my brother against my cousin, me, my brother, and my cousin against another tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's me, my brother, my cousin, our tribe, and that other tribe against another clan. Mm-hmm. And it's our, me, my brothers, our cousins, our tribe, that tribe, and that clan against anyone from outside of Afghanistan. And so you have this like narrow pocketed view of the world where it's like, yeah, but this is my town. This is my village. Right. You're not going to come in here. And the fact that you're here is the issue. And there was a, uh, I can't remember where I heard this, you know, but it was a parable about Afghanistan about, it was a man and he's walking through Afghanistan. And he's got nothing with him. He's just got a stick and he's, he's walking through Afghanistan and an old man stops him and he says, Hey, you know, what are you doing, man? Like, why are you walking through Afghanistan? You don't have a rifle. You just have a stick. Like you're asking for trouble. You should sell everything you have and get a rifle. You're asking for trouble walking through Afghanistan. So the guy goes and he goes, oh, I need a rifle. I'm going to go find myself a rifle. So he sells everything he has and he gets himself a rifle. And he's walking through and goes back to the old man. And the old man says, what are you doing? You're walking through Afghanistan with a rifle asking for trouble you're asking what are you doing walking through afghanistan with a rifle you're asking for trouble Mm -hmm. and it's that idea like there is no real win here yeah there's that's the parable there is no real walking into my village is the issue yeah yeah whether you walk into my village with or without a rifle it's the issue is you're here yeah you're not from here and And there was never i mean unless we were committed to a century of I, I, you know, occupation, quote unquote, um, and education and, you know, working with them, even then it's like, how, how long do you stay? Yeah. And I think that that gets into that question of do, is it our, the job of our military to try to impose some sort of cultural change upon somebody? Because that's what, at the end of the day, we were asking of specifically the Pashtun. Now, when we, we look at the Taliban, it, it has to be looked at through that cultural lens of the Taliban is a Pashtun organization. Whether or not we consider them to be a legitimate government or a terrorist organization, that seems to be, to be up to whoever is in charge. The, the Trump administration considered them a terrorist organization until they considered them a semi-legitimate government. Mm-hmm. The Biden administration seems to be considering them a... like. A, a government. So we find ourselves in a situation where you have a, what was a Pashtun tribal religious movement, which has now stepped its way into the international community. And I, I struggle to think that we, um, we saw that being the end game here as the preferable end game. Yeah. And that's where in Afghanistan is we, we struggled so greatly with that outreach into those, those deep, villages out in Pashtunistan that you know mm-hmm. that that Pashtunistan area is 
the, the kind of the term for it. And it's that cross border, Pakistan, Afghanistan, area, yeah. Pashtunistan. It's, it's, is there a border? Okay. Show yeah. me, right. Take me, take, go ahead. Take me to the border and show me what, what's Afghanistan, and what's Pakistan, because mm-hmm. your first problem is going to be getting there. Right. Get to go ahead and get there to yeah. show me where it's at because they're not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Totally. And, uh, and, and we, we struggled with that outreach to those villages. That and you never went out to those villages to say, hey, these are the pros. This mm-hmm. is what we can do for you. This is how we can bring water and jobs and, and agriculture in. And you found yourselves in this, okay, well, also in Afghanistan, nothing grows. It's, this is a very, very, very harsh terrain. Corn barely grows, but what does grow is opium. Mm-hmm. And what also grows is cannabis. And it grows like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. And 15 foot tall weed fields. Guys having machine gun fights six feet from each other. Not, mm-hmm. you can't see the Taliban six feet from you shooting machine guns through cannabis plants. You know, it just those things grow. And you could, you could pay the farmers to not grow opium, but then the Taliban is going to come and they're going to ask them, like, hey, man, where's all that opium? Mm hmm. You know, and so he grows cannabis and well, then what are we going to do? Burn his fields down because he's growing cannabis to make hash. And so we would then give them fertilizer, you know, to to grow other uh, to grow other crops, to grow soybeans, which isn't a number one. Nobody in Afghanistan has ever eaten a soybean. Yeah. Why are we trying to have them grow soybeans? Mm-hmm. Corn, they had grown. They, they would try to grow that. So we, well, we'd have to provide them with fertilizer. But you need high nitrogen fertilizer, which, sorry to tell you, is also the number one ingredient in homemade explosives. So to solve the issue of, of getting people to not blow us up, yeah, to not build bombs, we were giving them more ingredients to build bombs and asking them to put it on the ground, put it onto their fields. And then you wonder why, like, man, we find info everywhere here. You find all of basically like the vast majority of the um, the explosives in Afghanistan, the IEDs that were that were killing troops and maiming troops, um, was very simple ammonium nitrate fuel. It, it was the same things that that the Oklahoma yeah. City bombing, what he used, but fertilizer okay. and fertilizer and diesel fuel is what they were using in the right amounts. And you add a couple special things here and special things there, and you get yourself some some halfway decent explosives. Mm-hmm. And these, this is what they were using. And it was the fertilizer that we were giving was being yeah. then turned into bombs. And so it's, you're in this crazy catch 22 of like, well, we want them to grow corn, but the only way corn grows is if we give them bomb making materials. Right, right. And everything we have runs on batteries. And now we can't, you can't throw batteries out because they would take dead batteries. And the ingenuity is, is what would, what kind of always struck me of like, mm-hmm. we always, there was a, a, a thing that was said that I, when I heard it, I was like, I don't know, man, I read the other side of the mountain and it, it doesn't seem to be, make sense. It was, they referred to the, the Taliban as cavemen with AKs. I just said like, man, these guys would take 24 AA batteries and then link them all in series to create enough voltage to set off electrical detonator caps. That's not a caveman. No. It's an incredibly intelligent human being who understands electrical engineering. 
who understands how to run things in series and not in parallel and how knows Mm -hmm. like so this idea that we were fighting some sort of like illiterate rube well the vast majority of them were illiterate yeah it doesn't mean they didn't know how to make a bomb it also doesn't mean they didn't know the fighting positions that their fathers and grandfathers fought in and that's something that i think the american public myself probably included as a civilian would definitely think like we're fighting guys who are up in the mountains like dwelling in caves that are illiterate why are we why why aren't we winning you know this this seems like a slam dunk yeah Um, well it's um it's very simple to defeat a lumbering armored army it's mm -hmm. it has been the tactic of the smaller less equipped but playing on their home field you know it it is the war of the gorilla it is the war of the flea you i don't have to kill all of you i just have to keep killing you right and that's the idea is these people didn't need much to defeat us they didn't need gps systems they didn't f32 or f22s and yeah they didn't they didn't need any of that and all of those things were at in the end i think a detriment there was a way to win this war outside of the way that we as Americans like to conduct war. There was, mm-hmm. there was another idea that was kind of somewhere in between, um, somewhere in between like what was going on with the Americal division in Vietnam and Colonel Kurtz, mm-hmm. you know? We gotta find that, you gotta find that, you gotta walk that line, yeah. right? You don't want Colonel Kurtz in the mountains going native. And you also don't need like, big hulking divisions which just lumber around and are you know and are just being picked apart by the Viet Cong like there yeah. has to be an in-between and there was an in-between that could have been that could have been done but we we like this idea of we put a unit into combat it does its 18 month 15 month 12 month 9 month tour whatever it is and then we bring it back home and we bring the boys home and I was like yeah, but every single nine months, you lose the institutional knowledge of that battle. You totally. lose the knowledge of every fighting position. You lose the knowledge of every single place that they like to attack you from. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of casualties in combat occur at the beginning and the end of tours. They occur when you don't know what the hell is going on. You have no idea where they're shooting at you from. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when you're getting complacent and you're ready to go home. Right. And so there was a, there was a way to win that war. And I think it was somewhere in between having units that you had rc south and that general was going to be there for three years and those troops were going to be there for three years Mm. you know and it was a rotational thing where maybe troops were rotating out every 12 months and hey if you you know like they did in vietnam if you dig it here and you like it and you're cool with that you can stay right sign your papers and you can stay we'll even give you a new rifle you know, right. send you wherever you want, but you have that institutional knowledge. And there was plenty of guys, plenty of guys that you ask them, do you want to go to Thailand for three weeks and chill out and then go back to Afghanistan? They'd say, sure, man, I'll sign up for another nine months. Cause yeah. there is a portion of a young man that finds in combat that belonging and that purpose that you could keep a guy there for quite a long time. And the institutional knowledge we would have built up over those. Yeah over all of that time would have been the knowledge to say, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm the, the guy who's been here for two and a half years now. And we've been talking about education for girls. Yeah. We've been talking about medical clinics and we've been talking about an economy and we've been talking about what, what future do you see for your yeah. village? Because right. that's something that 
that we got so caught up in telling them what it is that we were going to do for them. We never got to asking them what was the future that you had in your mind for Afghanistan? Because some of these villages would have and did tell us straight away, like, we don't want you. Right. We just want what we have. And that's what we're, that's what we have. It's what we're used to. That's what exactly. we have always done for, you know, centuries. And, yeah. and you that's know. where you have the opportunity for there have to have been something different mm -hmm. or there to have been a, an idea of, listen, we've been here talking for two years about how it can be different about how these girls can be educated. And we have that conversation every single Friday, you know, of whatever it is that you sit down with a person and you have tea and you get to know each other and you can, you can discuss things. But we got so caught up in the rotation in, rotation out that like by the time a guy had built trust with you, it was like, hey, man, I'm getting out of here. I'm, I'm totally. And it yeah. Was and, the, and, the, and the Taliban's playing the other side. So, I mean. Hey, guess what? Those guys are leaving. Yeah. Hey, guess what? we're coming in they're leaving they're not going to be that guy those americans are rotating home and mm -hmm. at some point and this is that um that that it really reminds me of a a specific moment in afghanistan i was training these um this afghan army mortar platoon mm -hmm. and it was um you know young soldiers are going to be young soldiers with no nco support you know, they, they were just being young soldiers and weren't particularly interested in doing what we were doing. And I, I remember like having this moment of blowing up at them and being like with my interpreter being like, tell them exactly what I'm saying and use all the words that you need to, to get my point across mm -hmm. and telling them we're leaving guys. If you don't get it now, you're never going to get it. We're leaving. We're not going to be here forever. The only thing all of these guys back here are doing on this American base you can't see behind those big tall concrete walls all they're doing is retrograde operation it's tearing stuff down it's pulling stuff apart it's getting it back to our bases to fly it out to fly it home mm -hmm. to get it out of here we're leaving and this was in 2013 yeah so seven years you know eight years and we're we're leaving we're getting out of here you guys have to prepare you guys right. have to know what you're doing because we're not going to be here and one day the commandos aren't going to show up you're going to need to know what you're doing. And if you don't, the Taliban's going to come over those walls and they're going to cut your heads off. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to kill all of you. And, if, and we're not going to be here to save you. And that was that, um, that moment of, like, of, of, of honesty with those Afghan troops of telling them. You got, like, and I told them, we're done for the day. Like, go tell your lieutenant that I sent you home because you weren't doing any work. Mm -hmm. But it was that moment of honesty. Like, listen, I, I needed to get it out. Like, if you guys don't get it, because it was incredibly difficult to see an army which had this kind of, you know, the, the Afghan commando force was very good, very professional. And like, that was as close as you were going to get to like an American infantry unit. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the Afghan army, excuse me, Afghan army units, it, it kind of depended on the leadership. I, I saw some units that were excellent, that mm -hmm. were incredibly well led, incredible, like, we had, uh, we had, you know, Afghan officers which spoke English and you get to speak with them and kind of blown away by like the professionalism with which they're conducting themselves in this, hmm. in this war. And then you, you're seeing them have to deal with like, you know, the, um, 
the nepotism and the nonsense of higher command of like a major, uh, you know, a colonel in the Afghan army who's hired on his like idiot cousin to be in charge of this guy. And you're like, man, I feel for you. I feel yeah, yeah. for it, you know? Yeah. And that was one of those, those moments of like, you have that interplay of, you had Afghan army units, which were just worth nothing. And then you had some that would fight like lions. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it was one of those, it was, uh, I think in the president's speech when what, like, I think it brought me just to like such a, a moment of being like, but you're lying. You're mm-hmm. lying is when he said that the Afghan, that we're having to do this and fight for, for Afghans that aren't fighting for their own country. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to say, like, that's a lie, man. That's mm-hmm. a lie. I watched them fight. Like, I had an Afghan soldier take a bullet, like, right here, firing, like, from a PKM machine gun that was firing at me and my mortar team. You know, and it killed the Afghan soldier, like, in a tower right next to me. Mm-hmm. And so for, to hear, like, the commander-in-chief say that these men weren't fighting and that they didn't fight, it's like, Man, they took tens of thousands of casualties year after year after year. I watched an Afghan battalion get like chewed up trying to get through this mountain pass. And it, yeah. it's one of those moments that like you, um, you don't particularly view military operations in that manner anymore, but it was like some sort of World War II kind of, well, you know, it was supposed to go 30 days, but, or five days, but 30 days later, where, you know, mm-hmm. we think we'll get that mountain pass open today. And like, right. oh, God. And just man. keep throwing people at it. We're just going to keep throwing Afghan companies into this thing and watch them get torn apart. And you have mm-hmm. like the first day in American route clearance platoon, like an American route clearance platoon is one of those things that can basically knock out every IED threat out there, you know? Yeah. And they made it about a quarter of a mile before every vehicle had been disabled, you know, not just from IED fire, but from direct fire weapons, from SPG nines, from, from RPGs, from recoilless rifles. They were knocking out vehicles with the chorus rifles and you go like, man, they're just more committed down here. You know, they're just right. down in Helmand. They're just a little bit more committed and Helmand. Right. It was, you went down into the Marines Helmand was the British first controlled Helmand was kind of the, um, the idea is the British got Helmand, the Canadians got Kandahar mm-hmm. and the Canadians. I, I think the, um, they were very, very underserved by their government. The mm-hmm. Canadians fought with everything that they had, but they were just vastly undersupplied for what they were being asked to do there in Kandahar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Brits and the British paratroopers down in Helmand and in Sangin were like heroes. Those dudes, they're, the stories of heroism of the British paratrooper regiment in, in Afghanistan is, you know, it is now becoming stuff of legend down there in Helmand. And just so I'm clear, this is when the British were, were in there. Helmand, yeah. And, what, and in, not during the US-led invasion. No, this was early this is... in the war. So from about 2001, okay. yeah. 2002 timeframe, until okay. around 2011 or 12, okay, the Brits basically were in control of Helmand, and then the U.S. Marine Corps took over gotcha. Helmand Province. When I was there, um, we rolled through a number of British lines. Mm-hmm. Um, there was still British platoons and British armored platoons out there. 
Uh, but the vast majority was U.S. Marines out there. But Helmand was different in just its geography. It's a um, it's basically a big giant desert, mm-hmm. mountainous region, and then these very tightly packed green, lush valleys that you go from being in a desert mountain to being in a jungle almost. Like mm. you can't see in front of you the 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 cannabis plants are so tall and then when we were there in february and march they would had just planted all of the poppy and so it was just as far as the eye could see it was just the little poppies just hmm. every field was was poppy yeah. and it was when i was there it was something like 90 percent of the world's heroin was coming out of helmand province and it was just that the entire economy of helmand was was pretty much um opium based i would say right yeah, yeah. so Let's flash forward a bit yeah. as we get into like the evacuation yeah. um, and, and sort of what your view of it was. And, you know, you'd been working with these interpreters as well over the course of your time there yeah. and obviously developed some pretty close relationships with them. So what was happening on, on the ground in Afghanistan and what were you hearing from the people that you had been working with? So the evacuation kind of, um, it all for me has been wrapped up in um, my daughter was born and then, um, Afghanistan started to collapse. And so kind of in this moment of, of like joy, I was also dealing with this, this immense feeling of like sadness and of helplessness of, of my interpreters, guys that I'd worked with every day for nine months had conversations. Like when you spend, you know, eight, 10, 12 hours a day with somebody, like there's only, you know, you can only before you, you can only talk about so many little nonsensical things before you have to actually start having deep conversations. Right. And so I got to have really deep conversations about like, well, what does the future look like for you? And what is it that you want to do? And getting to see them and have these relationships like that, to me, really, it kind of showed me that idea of there was two Afghanistans. There was that idea of the Taliban and then the idea of the people who wanted something different, something more free, something more Western, where they're, they could have a wife who could go out and have a job and they could raise their kids and and so getting to see that and know that it was like oh it, it's not just that one guy it's an aberration it's like kind of him and his whole family kind of mm-hmm. they all kind of think the same way and oh his family also kind of also works with the coalition and that's what kind of what you saw is the vast majority of the interpreters came from families that were working either with the afghan army or the afghan police mm-hmm. they're working in the afghan government they were interpreters their you know sisters were working with aid organizations and doing things to to bring afghanistan forward and this was kind of the 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 kind of cultural academic sphere of afghanistan that was trying to to bring afghanistan forward and to Mm -hmm. to bring these kind of more ruralized populations to less of a religious idea of the world more towards a um a more kind of secular western idea of basic liberalism yeah and so as the evacuation started it was um one of the things that initially happened first was like when we left Bagram Mm -hmm. and I think that that is a um it's one of those things that I've I had somebody ask me you know after this is all done like what can I do and I I struggle to find anything other than like hey call your congressman and Mm -hmm. find out like get, have them do an actual investigation, not a let's find some 
colonel in the Pentagon to pin this on, but like who made the decision? Mm-hmm. Number one, who made the decision to give up Bagram? Mm-hmm. Because who would give up a fortress in the mountains with two runways and everything you need to defend it and everything you need to conduct a safe and orderly evacuation? Why would you not even tell the Afghans that you're partnered with, that you're allied with, that you're leaving? They didn't mm-hmm. even tell them that they were leaving, Sean. They just left. Cut. Yeah. And how the Afghans found out that they had been abandoned at Bagram Air Base was when the power went out. And when they went over to say, hey, man, power went out. Where is everybody? Yeah. They had been abandoned. And that's what I find to be so frustrating is right. that feeling of abandonment. Mm-hmm. These are my friends. These are my allies. These are men that fought next to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and for us to have abandoned them in, in such a manner to me is it, it, it's shameful. And it's the word that I kept coming back to is it's unconscionable. Un- yeah. There's this cannot be looked at with a conscience and say that this is right. Right. And that this is in any way a logical, reasonable plan that that we somehow came up with or coordinated because. I was just an E5, man. I was just a sergeant, but I can tell you, you don't want to be doing an evacuation from an international airport in the middle of a city surrounded by mountains. You don't want to be doing an evacuation from there. You would much rather, given the opportunity, do it from a fortress in the mountains with multiple runways, Mm -hmm. multiple gates and multiple layers of security through which you can move and maneuver and and bring people in and i think that that's what became so frustrating is that i was dealing with it on both sides i was talking to friends of mine who were in the 82nd airborne who were on the ground friends of mine in the special forces who were on the ground there in kabul at hamid karzai airport and i'm also talking to afghans who are good friends you know good friends of mine guys that when we text we we call each other brother because these are guys who like listen I, I, I doubt that I would be where I'm at today or in the positions I would be in if it wasn't for these guys, because not only were they kind of a, hey, help me get through these difficult conversations with the Afghan army mm-hmm. about X, Y, or Z. Hey, man, give me a little bit of cultural insight on this or that, or hey, man, just help me. Like, it was just, these are people that are incredibly, incredibly good human beings. And for me to be like, stuck in between trying to okay i'm trying to talk to this guy and to, and to them and seeing it from both sides it what it what it just became was chaos it was just plain and pure chaos and it was mm-hmm. guys on the ground who were trying to do everything they could to help people like me who were outside of afghanistan trying to get people that we knew were like listen the the taliban that is in control now Mm-hmm. is being sold to the American public as a kind or gentler Taliban. Well, that's a lie. There is no kind or gentler Taliban, and there's never going to be a kind or gentler Taliban. Mm-hmm. It's just taking time. The execution's already started. And mm-hmm. that's where I found such like frustration is in the seeing it and hearing it from what was going on on the ground. From people who were there, it was saying like, hey, they're shooting people in the streets right now in Kabul. That was difficult to hear, you know? And Which we hear, weren't getting, we weren't getting much information of, if any at we all. Were, and I think that that, Sean, was another one of those very frustrating things of, 
of seeing the lies in real time. And we're in a, we're in a time when like, you can see lies happening in real time. And mm -hmm. I kept seeing this idea of like, well, this has been nothing but a smashing success and seeing the State Department talk about nothing but a smashing success, 120,000 people ex like evacuated. Like I'm absolutely ecstatic about every person that we got out. I'm so very thankful about that. But the enormity of the issue demanded a Berlin airlift level you know, military engagement of saying, we are going to get our people out. Right. We, it wasn't for lack of aircraft. That's a lie. Mm -hmm. Every single refueling aircraft in the military arsenal, the thousands of them can be repurposed as cargo and troop transports in two hours. They were built that way. Mm -hmm. They were just built that way because we knew we might have to move mass amounts of people at some point. Right. So, Hearing lies and knowing, but like behind the curtain, well, that's a lie. They have the capability. They have the, like, listen, there's like, no reason that we couldn't say we're taking this airfield. We're putting a C-17 down every 60 seconds. And guess what? There's no civilian airliners taking off. We're putting a C-17 down every 60 seconds and we'll give you a window to take off every hour. Yeah. There was no reason why we couldn't have done that. But it just seemed like we had come to the conclusion that the game was lost. And that even though the game was lost, we shouldn't even try to salvage it. We should just let it be a blowout. And that's what it felt like sometimes. Mm. Is, is they were, it was like you were watching them run up the score in real time. Yeah, yeah. When you were seeing things and you were seeing entire armories get captured and caches and... and being on some text threads with Afghan veterans who, you know, guys who fought in Afghanistan in different units and kind of keyed in on the right signal channels of, of where you can find like real factual information and seeing like, man, hey, and knowing, hey, the 205th Corps just surrendered, the 215th Corps just surrendered, like, and seeing armories full of weapons fall into the Taliban, it was like, hey, man, this isn't being covered by the news. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's talking about the fact that like, multiple capitals and provinces are falling and everything's collapsing back to Kabul. And that's where I just found this to be this, we were just stuck in this cycle of being told everything was going well. And then in mm -hmm. reality, it's like, Hey, I, I can't even get my people. Like, even if I could know for sure that they were on some list somewhere in Hamid Karzai airport to get them onto a plane the issue is I can't even get them to the gate because I have to get them through the Taliban yeah. first. And then I have to get them through the mass of humanity that was packing those gates mm -hmm. and then get them to try to find somebody who has their name and who knows who they are and can point to those people and say, okay, now this went on for like a week and a half that we're trying to get people through these gates. And it's just, the situation became one where we... Um, we were lucky to be able to hear some, have some intelligence from on the ground and be able to push our people away from the Abbey Gate. Um, and that like, it may have saved people's lives, you know? Yeah. Thank you all for joining us for part one of our conversation with Adam Zafudo. Uh, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you are the first to know next week when we bring you part two of our conversation with Adam. Please reach out to me, 
Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any questions, comments, or concerns. We look forward to seeing you all next week for part two. I want to thank Millerstown Pick Apart for their generous support and sponsorship of this program. For Millerstown's hours, direction, inventory, and pricing, go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D.com. Thank you so much, Millerstown, and uh, we'll see you on the next Cuddlebutt.